to Mars. But we ain't even thinking that far. You know what I mean? So we live Hey everybody, this is J.D. Flynn, Editor-in-Chief of The Pillar, and this is a special bonus episode of The Pillar Podcast, where I have uh, a great guest. I do not have um, my ordinary podcasting partner, Ed Condon, with me. Instead, I have the Emeritus Archbishop of Philadelphia, my um, my former boss, and my my good friend, uh, Archbishop Charles Shapio. Archbishop, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, J.D. I'm very, very happy to be with you, and congratulations on your new efforts with the pillar. It's really been very interesting. I've followed it from the beginning and will continue to do so. I look forward to something new every week. And I really mean something new. I mean, you have information there we don't find anywhere else in the church. So thank you. Well, thanks. I, I really appreciate that. And, um, and I'm really glad you said it too, because now I can cut it up into like commercials that we use. And <laughs> we can... <laughs> That'll be great for us. So thanks. That's very kind. Um, but I don't want to talk about, the... I mean, I always want to talk about the pillar, but I don't want to just talk about the pillar. Um, I, I want to talk about uh, your new book, um, uh, which has just come out, Things Worth Dying For. This is, I, I think this is your fourth book. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Uh, it's my last one also. Okay. Well, I've said and, that three times before, but I mean it this time. And, and thematically, that makes sense for this one, because this one is about, in a certain way, your reflections, as you say, with more of your life um, in the rearview mirror than in front of you and, and a sort of some reflections from that perspective. So it sort of makes sense as a kind of um, concluding act. Right. And it, it's an awful lot of work. And uh, I think I've said enough and I've said everything I have to say. Uh, I'm sure I'll stay engaged on a you know more um, regular basis after my initial year of retirement. When it yeah. comes to the ordinary life of the church, I still want to write articles and say things. But in terms of a book, I think this is, this is enough. This is it. Well, your initial year of retirement has been an unusual one because it's been just this most unusual year for the whole the whole of the church and for the whole world. Yeah, almost the whole time. I, I was uh, retired for three weeks before the lockdown came. And actually, I'm still quite locked down. Here in southeastern Pennsylvania, there are still quite a few restrictions. Mm-hmm. And I'm living in a place called St. Edmund's Home for Children, where the children uh, are residents. They are the most severely, severely disabled among us. Uh, their parents aren't able to care for them. So the community here takes care of them, but they have immune deficiency issues. So we have to be very careful about bringing the virus back to the home. Well, that's an act of of, um, generosity on your part to be careful about that for their sake. Well, I am very happy to live here. I I very much admire the example of the staff here. They they give wonderful example of care and love, and I want to do all I can to support uh, them and also to protect the kids, of course. Now, it's, it's interesting if we can talk about the book. It's interesting that your book comes out at this time during the pandemic because your book is really a reflection on the things that mean the most in life, at, at least as you see them. And this seems to be a time where a lot of people are reflecting on just that, sort of taking stock on what their lives were before and what they might be um, going forward. Do you, do you think that's providential? I mean, you obviously didn't plan that. No, I, I didn't. I actually began to work before the pandemic began. I think this is the first time in my life since the Vietnam War, where people have been actively afraid of dying or afraid that someone in their family would die. I know, I mean, it happens every day in terms of people getting sick and having elderly parents or whatever, but in terms of a lot of people worried about the possibility of dying when, they, when they're actually younger and healthy, this is really the first time since the Vietnam War that that's been a common experience, I think. Yeah, it sort of lays um, bare or pulls back the curtain on the fear of death that so many people have, and especially the fear of death that comes, I think, for believers too, but especially without an expectation of what's to come. Uh, that, that's right. One of the things that I say in the book that I, I think is very interesting is that there are three characteristics of human beings that are not common uh, with any other part of uh, the created world that we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, human beings are the only ones who make tools, at least sophisticated tools. They're the only ones who paint images and uh, do art and uh, we're the only part of creation that we know that buries the dead yeah you know sometimes animals watch over a dead animal companion for a while after they die but they don't bury the dead and and it's been part of our human tradition to do that from the very very beginning so there's something about human beings that take death seriously and actually you know i think we're also um an, an equality of human beings is the fact that we also want to 
conquer death. We want to see there is hope beyond the grave. Yeah. And that's so much a part of our process of caring for the dead is it's uh, we believe that, that death is just a step into the next life, which yeah. is the gift of eternal life in, in our Christian understanding. Yeah, there's a way in which I think Cardinal Connor talked about there's a way in which sort of fighting against death is sort of our, our last fight, you know, our, our last fight against Satan himself is sort of pushing back against the coming, the coming of death itself, that there's something good about not being afraid to die, but um, trying to keep ourselves alive and, and wanting to, to live as even with the anticipation of, of eternity. I think we all want to live forever. That was right. the name of the song that I, I grew up with and which I like very, very much. Yeah. I want to live forever. What was that like? Um, the Rat Pack or something? I mean, I no, no, it was a group from Germany that were the original singing singers of that song. And uh, Jay-Z actually came up with a version of it maybe 10 or 12 years ago that was also very good. It's worth listening to. So you, you and Obama then both have Jay-Z prominently in your, in your iPods is basically what you're saying. Well, I don't know if I have anything more of his in my iPod than that one song. <laughs> okay. But, but I have that one song. I have the original version, which I think is, is better. And then I have the, the modern rap version of the same. Cool. Well, I want to talk about um, the fear of death and your growing up because you have a unique experience with death from even, at, uh, even as a child because your, your father was a mortician. You lived above the, the funeral home. And so long before you were a priest, you were familiar with and experienced with death in a way that a lot of people are, are not. That's right. I, you know, I think I grew up thinking everybody lived over a funeral home because it was <laughs> such a common part of life and didn't seem unusual until I started inviting my friends to, to come to visit me. And they were a little hesitant about visiting a funeral home. And then they were very curious uh, when my father wasn't there. I would show them the embalming room and the uh, casket display room, and they all found that very interesting and scary. Wow. Um, but it was just a common part of life for us. We actually grew up very comfortable with the idea of death. Actually, when I was in high school I, I, and uh, in my early college days, I would occasionally help my father bring a, a body to the funeral home from uh, the hospital or from somebody's home. Uh, so seeing the dead and being familiar with death was a common experience in my family. My grandfather was the first uh, mortician in the group. You know, he had a furniture store. They made caskets. Oh. And, you know, in Kansas, where I'm from, that was, was and still is maybe a common characteristic that those who run funeral homes also run furniture stores. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, that was a connection. And uh, so uh, it was just part of day-to-day life. Now, I promise I have serious questions, but I can't help but wonder, did you bring girls to the embalming room? I mean, it seems like that might be a great thing <laughs> for teenage Charles Chaput. Well, to try actually, a teenage Charles Chaput at that age, my teenager was in the seminary, so we oh, weren't yeah. allowed to have girlfriends. Well, good. I went to, I went to a high school sem- seminary, but I actually, girls and boys came to visit the funeral home uh, yeah. when I was a kid, but not in a romantic sense. It seems like that would be a cool way to try and impress a girl. I don't, I don't know if it would work or not. But Well, they might think it's pretty weird, but yeah, yeah. Be, I guess it could be. It depends on the girl. Maybe I just don't know anything about impressing girls, I guess is what it comes well, to. I, I would think that the, the first thing you, you shouldn't do is take somebody to a funeral home. But you know, I, I have a priest friend here in Philadelphia uh, whose father proposed to his mother at a cemetery really oh. yeah yeah oh. it was a very interesting experience at, I guess. at a grave that was significant or i don't think so i think it was just that he thought it was a beautiful spot and oh. uh, the, the family laughs at this right yeah. and now is, is kind of a strange thing to do yeah she was from ireland she was visiting from ireland and huh. uh, the guy i think he must have worked at the cemetery at that time and took her to see it and proposed to her there now, let me ask you uh, about the sort of framework of the book. And, and just on this level, a lot of people, um, I know when they heard that you were coming out with this book, or even as I told people that you would be coming out with this book, uh, sort of thought that it might be a memoir. And we're kind of wondering if you would do a memoir. And this book is deeply personal, but it, it's not a memoir. It's uh, not a memoir. They're very deliberately so for two reasons. One, I don't have enough of an interesting life to do a memoir. Quite honestly, I really don't. And then secondly, I don't like that kind of self-focus and bringing attention to myself. So I've never intended to be autobiographical in any way other than just using moments from my life to illustrate uh, the things I'm trying to say in the book. But you do do that. And, and the book also might also be autobiographical biographical in the sense that sort of you come out and your experiences sort of come out through the, the way that you organize things and the way that you talk about things. Um, is that true about everything is autobiographical in that, in that sense, right? Sure. 
And, and that starts with you. You talk about your parents a great deal. Um, I was struck early in the book when you talk about your, the image of your father kind of kneeling at the at his bed at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. And it, it led me to wonder like, oh, how often do my children see me pray, which maybe is exactly why you, why you put it there. Um, but I wonder if you can talk about your parents as a witness of faith a little bit. Well, that's true. You know, I don't know that people kneel at their beds to pray at the beginning of the day and the end of the day today at all. Right. You know, yeah. but it was very common back in my time for parents to, to do that. My parents were very good Catholics. They were ex- absolutely faithful Catholics who knew their faith very well, even though neither one of them had more than a high school mm-hmm. education. My mother was a nurse. But back in those days, you didn't have to go to college to be a nurse. You just had to get a nursing certificate. Yeah. And my father had an embalming certificate because of the funeral. But they knew their faith very well and passed it on to us by example, as well as by a word, and would have been hugely scandalized if we acted against the faith or said yeah. anything against the faith because they were natural believers and sincere believers. Yeah, they they weren't daily mass attenders, mm-hmm. and they didn't run for the parish council or anything like that. But they never would miss mass on Sunday. We went to confession as a family every two weeks. Yeah, you mentioned that, and yeah. uh, I was really grateful for that example. Well, you talk about your parents as you sort of build on into a chapter on sort of the the love and life of a family. You talk about the power of families to form virtuous individuals, even saints, and you also recognize something that's true, which is that families have had a, a strange year. And, you know, a lot of the demographics sort of in sociology demonstrates that too, that families have grown a lot closer, in a lot of ways, they're more connected to each other, but they've also struggled with isolation and financial calamity, maybe, and mental health challenges. And I, I was struck by the idea that some sociologists have been talking about that there's probably going to be a sort of pandemic baby bust, um, not just because fewer families are open to life, but just that fewer couples are even having sex during this time, because there's just been so much strain. What does all that sort of tell us about the family. What does this challenging year tell us about the family and, and even what God might sort of be saying to American families right now? You know, I don't really understand the, the so-called baby bus. We used to joke that whenever there was a, a weather calamity and people were forced to be at home together, there would be a, a, a huge burst of new life, you right, know, right. rather than fewer bursts, it'd be more bursts. So where that comes from, I don't know. One of the things that I've also noticed about the pandemic is that uh, people are actually tired of being together. Yeah. I know that many people have said, oh, it's wonderful we have more time for our children and for each other. And I think that's true in maybe most cases, but there are other cases where it's really been very, very difficult because yeah. people just get tired of one another. Uh, I don't think it's natural for us to always be in the same space for such a long period of time. I think that uh, yeah. we're meant to be creative in the world around us and to be outside the home as much as inside the home. But yeah. uh, we we can't we haven't been able to make decisions apart from the reality we're living in, so we hopefully try to make the best of it. But I don't know how to explain that. I really think it's strange. It's very very true though. There's a um, a lack of uh, of births in our country that's kind of frightening. Yeah. And without the immigration from outside, uh, we would really be in, in deeper trouble. Yeah. Uh, Japan, I think, is probably the worst example of this mm-hmm. kind of. Uh, kind of self-genocide in a way, you know, yeah. where we're, we're destroying ourselves, but not reproducing ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was just reading about, um, about a, the phenomenon of uh, sort of Japanese young men who stay in their parents' house for, you know, in their room for like 10, 15 years, and they just sort of self-isolate in that way. And a lot of it is just screen addiction, which I suspect is probably part of the, the baby bus too. Um, you know, two people go to bed looking at their phones and fall asleep looking at their phones is a different, different reality. So I think I think married couples certainly have like a greater insight into what's happening there than those of us who are celibates. But it's certainly not good. Yeah. Not, not good on the natural level as well as the supernatural level. Yeah. Uh, it may be a sign that we we lack um, confidence in the future. And uh, there's a natural desire in human beings historically to to give children to the future, you know, to create the future by having children. Yeah. And at times in, in our history, we've seen it as the most important thing to do, even in terms of our self memory, you know, to pass on the memory of ourselves to a future generation, we have to have lots of kids and grandchildren and descendants. Yeah. One thing that we've talked about in our family, um, just sort of uh, more broadly is that point you made about being um, sort of, I guess, thwarted. We, we, before the pandemic, my wife and I were talking a lot about, okay, how can we make sure that as we're forming the kids in faith, we're forming them um, 
to know and love the poor? Like, what are the things that we can do so that our, our family can say we have some sort of apostolic identity or apostolic mission together? And maybe we got off the hook, I don't know, because just as we started having those, that conversation, we couldn't do anything at all. Um, but, but we found in a certain way that, that in itself was frustrating in that we, we want to teach the kids to sort of look outside of themselves and look outside of our, our family, and, and that's become more difficult. One of the most uh, beautiful examples of that, J.D., is here in Philadelphia with St. Catherine Drexel. I don't know how much you know about her life, but uh, her her mother died when she, her natural mother died when she was uh, quite young, and her father remarried. And uh, the the woman he remarried uh, was an extraordinary uh, Catholic, and they would invite the poor to share meals in their home every week. Neat. And uh, that's one of the ways that both he and his wife passed uh, their faith and generosity to their children was by not, not just helping the poor outside the home, but inviting the poor to their home on a regular, regular basis. Yeah. I think that people are hesitant to do things like that today because they're afraid of violence and the like, but that would be an extraordinarily good way to educate your children yeah. on the, the, the Christian necessity, not just a possibility, the necessity of loving the poor. Yeah. And certainly doing ministry together to the poor. Um, there are a lot of, examples of that going on today where you know mom and dad might have an apostolate to the poor and take their children along yeah and that's really a good thing to do yeah i guess the closest analog i think for my family is that we have a lot of priests over and those guys are often sort of poor poor staffs when they come over so <laughs> well, we, we certainly are a poor example of a lot of things You're right <laughs> about that not quite the same but the point that you make about family vitality the thing that you say is sort of most central to family identity and family vitality is is prayer together uh, how a family can pray together. And some families have said that it, it, the last year has been a, an opportunity to learn how to pray together. And, and other families, you know, have said they weren't even sure. I've talked to dads who say they weren't even sure where to start, that they sort of relied a lot on live stream masses because they thought maybe they'd lead their family in prayer, but they weren't even sure quite how to how to start. Um, how can families better learn um, how to spend time in prayer together? Well, you know, my, my parents never did uh, do spontaneous prayer with us. I don't think they ever prayed with each other in that way. Although we did pray together at the beginning of every meal, we wouldn't have begun a meal without saying grace. And, uh, and my mother and dad gave an example to each other as well as to the kids by publicly praying by themselves. When we were kids, uh, like before we were five years old, I think, my parents would take turns going to Mass on Sunday so they wouldn't have to drag the kids with them to be distracted during Mass. Uh, which isn't done today. You know, everybody goes to mass together today. So the reason I'm saying these things is we didn't do the kind of things that are seen as kind of romantically families bringing together, but we learned the importance of prayer and the consequences of that in the good example that my parents gave. Now, having said that today's a different time and, and we have a lot more resources and it doesn't look like it's Protestant anymore to do spontaneous prayer, which is seen in those days is kind of what Protestants did. Yeah. And so I, w- I encourage parents to uh, certainly pray together in a way that their children see them and then to teach their children the same. We did pray the rosary together as a family when I was very young, but that never went over very well with my yeah. sister and I. Um, we rebelled against it a lot and tried <laughs> to escape it. Yeah. Uh, I kind of think praying a decade of the rosary together probably is a better thing, uh, better way to start than praying the whole thing Yeah. Um, we, to, yeah. today we found that the decade is about as far as we can get before it becomes just like this weird intermixing of prayer and spankings and prayer and spankings. And, <laughs> you know, we're going to finish this thing. Damn it. So get back to get your rosary. That's, that's right. Yeah. So. We have to be realistic about what works, you know, right, it's always exactly. better to do a little bit of something well than to do a lot of something poorly. Yeah. And unfortunately in the church, we sometimes think that we please God by just doing more when we yeah. really would please God more by doing less, but doing it well. Yeah. Yeah. By well, I don't mean necessarily beautifully, but sincerely. Yeah. And with focus and concentration. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And I'm glad you you say that because I want to kind of transition from the family to the church if we can. Uh, You have a great sort of chapter about the life of the church. Um, But throughout the book, you kind of bring up a few churchmen who are, it seems to me, must be influential to you just by the, the the frequency with which you bring them up in this book and in other places and also, as it happens, I know that they're influential to you because you've said it. You talk about Cardinal Lustige, you talk about Dulubach, you talk about Ratzinger. It seems those are among those, and, and John Paul II, those are among those who have been sort of the most influential for you as, as a churchman. I, I wonder both why and sort of what you take away from them. 
Well, first of all, a comment about the word churchman. It's interesting that uh, we use that word to describe the clergy uh, rather than to describe somebody like yourself who whose whole yeah. life is wound up in the church, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're a full-time church person right now with the pillar. Yeah. And you have been really since I've known you, you've been more or less full-time church. And the reason for that, I think, is that, uh, you know, the relationship of the clergy to the church is different than the relationship of the laity yeah. in that uh, all of us see the church as our mother, but those of us who are clergy also see the church as our spouse and mm-hmm. as our family. And so we're a man of the church. It's like you're a man of a family. Yeah. We're men of the church. And that's why we use the, that term. Um, I do. The people you mentioned are the people that I really admire the most. Uh, I hesitate to name people because uh, you leave other people out who yeah. may be equally important to you. And I've had many mentors that aren't mentioned in the book that people wouldn't know among the Capuchins, for example. Yeah. You know, I, I uh, left the diocesan seminary life to become a Capuchin because of the good example of Capuchin friars that I knew that I still admire very much. You know, one of the things about getting older is I, my memories of uh, both my parents and my early life and those uh, early mentors are much more vivid now than they mm. were even a year ago. I'm, I'm amazed how often I wake up dreaming about the, the past and the very mm. pleasant past, really, cool. uh, where all those kind of uh, folks were influential in my life. I've been blessed to live at a time of uh, of heroes. You know, John Paul II is a hero of mine. I don't think there's a, ever been a better theologian in the, in the church, other than maybe St. Augustine, yeah. um, who is better than um, Pope Benedict XVI. You know, he's just an extraordinary man. Yeah. De Lubach had a huge influence on my own ecclesiology. He was an ecclesiologist, and uh, and what he said about the church really uh, prepared us for the Second Vatican Council. And I think he's, he's, he's just wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Lucy J uh, uh, wasn't a, a friend in, in the sense of uh, somebody who we, we talked about, talked together a whole lot. He didn't speak English very well, and I didn't speak French at all, but he still was a mentor of mine in some ways. Uh, one of my big mentors that uh, I don't think I mentioned in this book, it was John O'Connor, Cardinal O'Connor in New York. He was he was not only a mentor, but he probably is the reason I became the Archbishop of uh, Denver. Mm. Um, so he actually had some influence on the direction of my life, you know, yeah. uh, at least for a while. And uh, I, I really admire him very, very much. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful for all those those people. They were very significant to my life and were gifts from God. Yeah. What's happening now, not just in the church, but broadly is, with growing distrust in all institutions, with sort of the facades crumbling of a, a lot of institutions, there's a sort of um, growing skepticism about the about the way in which heroes are are revered, you know. And and people in the past few years, for example, have said, "Well, we we've all held John Paul II up, and I myself have hold, held John Paul II up as a model in so many ways." And and now people say, "Well, but you know, as we look at the McCarrick Report and these other things, we can call into question his legacy." And it almost seems like. Um, it almost seems like a, a distrust or even a, an, an animus against sort of the lionization of anybody. Do, do you think that's healthy? Well, I think it's uh, dangerous to lionize people too soon in terms of sanctity and holiness. Yeah. Uh, so there's been a, a wisdom in the church to wait a number of years before beginning somebody's canonization process. I really do believe that. I actually believe that John Paul II is a saint, so I don't, I don't uh, regret uh, his early canonization, but I think yeah. there's a, wisdom in that but you know if we're honest all of us are as flawed as we're virtuous and that would yeah. be true about the the saints and somebody who sits in a confessional like most priests spend a lot of time doing we know that e- even the the people who are the holiest are also very very flawed and yeah. uh in some ways i would say t- i admire people not for their holiness but for their honesty and for their struggle to be holy more than yeah those who have been successful at it. Uh, I admire people who have been successful at it, but people who, there are some people who have been successful at being holy that haven't had a hard, hard time. Yeah. And there are some people who are not as obviously successful, but who struggle a lot more and are really probably holier because they've struggled so much more. Uh, by the way, today we probably wouldn't, uh, would we think of canonizing somebody like St. Augustine right. who, who um, lived a, you know, a pretty wild sexual life before his conversion who had a child outside of marriage who had a mistress um, yeah. 
it would keep him from being canonized today, maybe. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think that we, I think we need heroes, but we also know we can also believe deeply that holiness can simultaneously exist with sinfulness. It's true about each of our own personal lives. Yeah. So if it isn't true about our, if it's true about our personal lives, what wouldn't it be true about the saints? Yeah. You know, they had temptations, they fell like we do. They get up, they get up and kept trying. And they had a, a in undefeated fidelity to Christ, despite their temptations and their sins. It, it can be hard to believe that about ourselves, which maybe is why it's hard to believe that about other people. I, I examine myself and I see my myriad sinfulness. And therefore I sort of say, well, I'm not holy. Holiness is a different categorization, right? That, 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 that it's not where I fit at all. I'm, you know, the St. Paul says the chief among sinners. And maybe that, maybe that uh, inability even in ourselves to see that those two things kind of at the same time, you know, leads us to sort of think that a person is either black or white canceled or, or lionized without any right. in between. And, and I suspect that uh, my generation grew up thinking that when St. Paul said that, he didn't really mean it. Right. <laughs> we yeah. just, we just saying that to be humble, yeah, to yeah. appear to be humble, yeah. but it's true. It's, it's absolutely true. You know, it's a, the same thing shows itself in our civil society with the cancel culture of today, where we're, I'm right now, I'm reading a biography of U.S. Grant, you mm-hmm. know, the civil war general hero and president of the United States who did an actually pretty good job as president. Yeah. Uh, but he was also a man who struggled all his life with alcoholism. Yeah. And, and never really overcame it completely. Yeah, but I think he uh, is. A, it's really an interesting book, by the way, and I, I, I really have come to admire Grant in a way I didn't know that I, I could have before. Yeah. yeah, but I think we have honest biographies of all people. We see that they're a mixture of, of goodness and virtue, and they're people of their time. Yeah, you know, like like one of my personal heroes is Saint Louis the Ninth of France, right? Who Your was, relative? In, you mentioned it, yes, yes, it, but he also was involved in. The Crusades, and therefore the cancel culture wants to remove his name from that that city in in Missouri yeah. <laughs> is named after him. Yeah, um, and of course, I, I'm sure that um, the Muslims who live in St. Louis wonder about why the city is named after him. But at the same time, he was uh, that he was a saint. He was a man of his age, and that was an age where Islam and Christianity were in great conflict over the Holy Land. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that as we, as we, as the language gets more um, fervent about tolerance, we actually become less tolerant of the possibility of redemption, forgiveness, reintegration, or reconciliation into a community for those who have been deemed sort of um, an untouchable in, in one way or another. That's right. And, and the more we become loose morally, the more stringent we become on some areas of morality. Right. right that's it's just right. really quite amazing. Yeah. Know? Yeah. That's absolutely right. Well, you, you mentioned seeing the church as a spouse, and so you, you, you have seen the church, and you write about this as having seen the church as both a, as a mother, an institution, a community, and, and, and as a spouse, especially as a cleric. And you, your spouse now is facing a lot of challenges, and one of them is the sort of external persecution of believers, which you point to is tied to the decline of religious practice, right? So that if, if more people who were baptized as Catholics were formed as Catholics, then the church would be understood in a different way in civil society and treated in a different way. So that sort of leads just to questions about renewal. What what you see as sort of points of renewal of the of the Christian life of the church's mission, you know, is the new evangelization, which has kind of fallen out of favor as a buzzword, is it still an existent reality today? Where do you see it? Well, I, I do see the the uh, springtime of the church that uh, Pope John Paul II uh, spoke about is still taking place, but it's just on a much smaller. Uh, level than we had hoped for or expected. Mm-hmm. I think we we thought that that meant the whole of the church would would reembrace Christ with a new kind of vigor and enthusiasm. But you know, I, I would, without a doubt, I would say that the young people today who become serious Catholics are much more serious about it than the young people who were Catholics in my day. Much more serious, and it's harder to be serious about it because the church is much more criticized today than it was in those days. Uh, the sins of the church are much more publicly known than they were in those days. But nonetheless, we find many, many young people committing themselves to Christ and to the community of his uh, belief, of his followers of the church. And so I still have a, a lot of hope for the church. I don't, I don't think we should cling to the um, images we have of how the church is going to look uh, from the past, because it's going to look very different from the past. Yeah. And I think one of the problems we have today is trying to maintain that past heritage 
in the face of decreasing numbers and decreasing abilities financially to support it. And that's dangerous because if you use all your financial resources, maintaining the old decaying uh, institutional structures of the church, you don't have any resources to put into the the new uh, creativity that's really necessary to be evangelists in the 21st century. So I, I don't know what we can do about it, because, you know, other than Philadelphia, where we have lots and lots of churches that would be cathedrals in any other part of the country, but they're just ordinary parishes. But mm-hmm. in parts of town where there are very few Catholics anymore, and they just have huge, a huge amount of uh, problems in terms of the structures of the buildings. Yeah. And we're putting so much money and attention and creative priestly ministry into those dying uh, expressions of the faith. And if they die, people are going to panic and say, well, the church is falling apart. Well, right. the church is certainly different in size, but is is she falling apart? And is the church, has church really ever been more than a small group of serious believers, right. which at different times in history has had a huge uh, number of people who are on the periphery maybe, but who are serious Catholics? Uh, I don't know. It's been characteristic of your ministry to have to to try to it seems to me to try for that kind of openness that you talk about. You have wherever you've gone kind of invited in groups of really sort of broadly diverse perspectives. Um, You know, I think people think about you as being kind of a supporter of new movements, but at the same time, you've invited like the priestly fraternity of St. Peter and the places where you've been and given them space to do their ministry. So, like, what are the what are the metrics by which you, as a bishop, have sort of decided what kinds of things to um, open the door to or encourage or enable um, in, in the dioceses that you've led? I think two things. One is a zeal. Uh, I'm a sucker for people <laughs> who are zealous and uh, enthusiastic. And the second, orthodoxy. I'm a sucker for them too. And, uh, you know, the, the movements that are really successful are those that are simultaneously orthodox and zealous. And uh, nothing else ever works. Nothing else yeah. ever works. Yeah. Ever. Yeah, And it's going to die out. The part that's not zealous and the part that's not orthodox, it'll die out just like uh, the traditional mainline Protestant churches are dying out in yeah. our country at this time. Well, you, you mentioned the young people who are, who are, whose faith is not dying out, who are far more serious about being a Catholic, as you say, than, than people were when you, when you were young. And, and I see that too. Um, I talk to a lot of college chaplains who say that among the sort of really enthusiastic Catholics who, that, who are in their parishes or Newman centers or whatever, it's just an increasing number who are um, not only liturgical traditionalists, but also just sort of skeptical of the Second Vatican Council and influenced by those voices that are, in fact, growing in the church that would sort of discourage implementation of the council or encourage it to be rescinded or these kinds of things. And some of them would say, well, um, there's a correlation between liturgy and worship and the vitality of the church that has just sort of dropped dramatically since, um, since the reform of the liturgy, the introduction of the ordinary form. And that has not been your approach at all. Um, you've been open, I know, in the dioceses you've led to the extraordinary form, but, it's, but, but sort of that liturgical line of thinking has not been characteristic of your uh, leadership. And I just wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. Well, you, you're, you've described it correctly. Um, I certainly have been open to the Tridentine form because the Pope has asked me to be so and to do so enthusiastically. I've tried to be faithful. Uh, and it's been effective in bringing back to the church those who were on the far uh, right, you know, the, mm-hmm. the so-called Sadiacontists. Many of right. them have come back to the church by being comfortable with the Tridentine form. But, you know, I, I grew up with the Tridentine form and loved it. It formed me as a, as a Catholic. I never celebrated Mass as a priest in the Tridentine form because uh, the Vatican II renewal took place just right before I was ordained a priest. But I, I actually saw that the church within which I was formed uh, wasn't more effective at, yeah. at creating true Christians than the, the church of the Second Vatican Council. Right. Um, because, you know, the people who kind of ruined the church in the minds of these young people were all formed in the Tridentine form. So it didn't work. It, right. it didn't work. And uh, it seems to me that the Tridentine form is is a medieval and also a Renaissance expression of the church that was beautiful and necessary at its time because it was is a reflection of those cultures. But uh, the mm-hmm. Novus Ordo that uh, was given, given to the church by Pope Paul VI 
it really is closer to the way the church celebrated the Eucharist in its earliest days. So I think that uh, it's more catechetical. It's uh, the vernacular is absolutely important uh, uh, in order for the faith to be communicated. The arguments for the Tridentine way just aren't convincing to me in terms of passing on the faith. I mean, I can, uh, they pass on beauty without a doubt. Right. And, uh, but do they pass on the, the faith? I think we'll see, we'll see that in another generation or two in the church, whether the families that have been formed uh, in the Tridentine communities or stronger believers than those who haven't been. Though certainly the, the young families who participate are very strong Catholics. Yeah. But will their children really be formed for the future by that? I, I personally don't think so. But I think that uh, I'm just uh, one person and uh, the wisdom of the popes have been to allow it and encourage it. And so we'll just see if uh, both uh, ways can be a gift for the future for the church. Yeah, there's the idea of them, uh, uh, the Benedictine idea of them informing each other, the sort of reform of the reform that comes with the, those two things, informing each other so that the ordinary expression of the ordinary form is more beautiful as well. And those kinds of things. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that the many people who are attached to the Tridentine reform are willing to let it be reformed by, mm. the, by the reform. You know, they're as obstinate in doing that as uh, the Osorto folks who are opposed to the Tridentine form. They're not willing to let that influence their version either. Yeah. Yeah. So there is an equal closeness. Uh, but the Second Vatican Council, you know, if, if we're faithful to our Catholic theology, is the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit to the Church in the 20th and 21st centuries. And we can't see it as uh, anything other than that if we're going to be faithful to what we believe about, uh, uh, yeah. about ecclesiology and about the councils. And I would just encourage people who don't trust the council to actually read it maybe for the first time. Yeah. You know, there are many people, I don't trust what people have done with the council. I think that my generation of clergy uh, has done a very poor job in some ways of uh, passing on the, the faith of the church to the next generation. Uh, but I can't blame the second Vatican council for that. And uh, I think people actually read the documents and actually study them together. They'd find that the problems of today can't be placed on the back of the council itself. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you talk about the council as a sort of as a sort of mechanism of reform, and you also talk in the book about re- reform of the of the um, Roman Curia, which I know is something you talked about in other times too. Uh, you, you talk about the sort of Roman Curia as a Renaissance court and um, a simpler view of the papacy, and I appreciate those thoughts. But when I was reading them, I was thinking, okay, but at the same time, there's a danger to that simpler view, right? Because there's always a movement. You can see it now in Germany. There's a movement to sort of decentralize the church to undermine her doctrine. Or, you know, there, there are some other sort of synods and particular councils coming up in the life of the church in other countries, which could easily sort of go the way of Germany. Please, God, they won't, but could easily go the way of Germany. And that comes, I think, from that uh, sort of decentralization. So what's the balance between a simpler Roman Curia on the one hand, and on the other hand, the Roman Curia is a preservative of the church's doctrine? Well, I'm not against uh, the centralization of church authority. Um, I think it's necessary in a world as large and complex as our world is. Um, and instant communication requires a central authority that can hold the group together or, or people will go off in different directions, as, as you say. But many of the forms of the Roman Curia are of the Renaissance. Yeah. Even the clothes that people wear and the titles that we use, like eminence and excellency. And, uh, you, you didn't, Peter and Paul didn't refer to each other in those kind of ways. Now, I'm not against uh, some of that symbolism because I think it can be, very, it can be helpful. But it is just helpful. It's not essential. I also think that uh, we've come maybe too far in terms of seeing the papacy as, as uh, kind of the measure of ordinary church life throughout the world. The Pope is the one who makes the final decision when there are, there are struggles in the church regarding true uh, faith and morals. You know, he's the one who leads the church to unity. And I think that's, that's absolutely essential. The church falls apart. But, uh, you know, the Pope isn't the pastor of the world. He's a universal pastor in the sense of his authority is uh, everywhere, but uh, there can be uh, ways of being the church in Africa that the Pope wouldn't understand because he's not from Africa. Yeah. And so the, the way of doing the church in, in Rome will be Roman, but the way of doing the church in Africa, uh, I shouldn't say Africa, it's a kind of, but in different parts of Africa would be somewhat 
if not seriously different, as long as there's a, there's a unity of what we believe and what we, how we act, you know, faith and morals, and the deep respect for the role of the Pope in being the arbiter of those kind of things when there's disagreements. Somebody said to me recently that everybody's an ultramontane when their party is in power. Do you, do you think there's some true. truth to that? Yeah, I mean, and what, what does a maturity of that look like? Well, you know, for example, when uh, I think Pope John Paul II, who is a hero to many people who are my friends, he, he was really the bishop of the world. I mean, he traveled mm-hmm. so much. And I think many bishops modeled their own Episcopal life on him. In, in those days, I remember uh, talking to, I was a young bishop and uh, talked to some people who were, who were rather prominent liberal bishops in those days. And they despised the fact that the Pope would be, would be personally involved in the life of the church in such a direct way. Of course, those same men would be very happy today mm-hmm. uh, because of the involvement of Pope Francis in the lives of the church in those kind of direct ways. But the fact that I don't think John Paul is, was a model of the way the Bishop of Rome should, should act. I don't think that uh, somebody like uh, Pope Benedict would have retired if he didn't ha- see himself as having to kind of follow the, the path that John Paul II had because it required so much energy that he didn't know he didn't have it in his old age. You know, yeah. the Pope doesn't have to travel to be Pope. Yeah. He doesn't have to, to have that kind of personal relationship with all parts of the church. He can, yeah. Uh, it's good that he does that too, somewhat, you know, anyway. And uh, I think it's important to find a, a balance. But the, yeah. the heart of the papal ministry is is to keep the church in unity with the teachings of the apostles, which of course are the teachings of Jesus. And yeah. as long as the Pope is doing that, he's doing his job. And if he's out and around and not doing that, he's not doing his job. You yeah. know, being out and around is not one of the characteristics of uh of uh, the Pope from scriptures. Well, it's interesting to, to talk with you about that because you have more frequent flyer, flyer, flyer miles than almost any Bishop that I know, but I've also watched you um, just, it, it, I've watched, I can think of a time watching in the back of the Denver cathedral where you greeted, I mean, hundreds of people and knew their names. And I was just shocked by, I mean, it was just, man, you could have gotten, if you were, if you, if you were not an ecclesiastical ministry, you could have gotten elected to anything with a skill like that. I mean, it was just really an impressive, you know, recall. Um, so there was evidence, there's evidence of kind of knowing your own uh, church, and then at the same time being present in the life of the, the, the broader life of the church. How have you balanced those things over the t- course of your own active ministry? I don't know if I have or not, but I have certainly done both. Uh, I uh, took seriously the instruction that I received when I became a bishop that we're responsible for the universal church as a body of bishops, and not just for our own diocese. And, and because of that, I think it's important for us to participate in international efforts. And, uh, but you know, our focus has to be primarily at home because we're the bishop of a local diocese. And the place that we're responsible for primarily is the one that's uh, part of our, our mandate uh, to be the local ordinary of. So it, it's hard to find a balance between both of those. You know, um, Pope Francis has been critical of airport bishops, those who lie around too much, but then he's, he's probably flown around more than <laughs> John Paul II in terms of uh, number of times a year that he's been on the road. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in the way that they criticize the Pope, because I think it's uh, good that Popes do travel, but it just, when you're invited to give a talk here or there, it's an honor probably. And you, you probably think you're more important than you actually are when you're invited to do those kind of things. But uh, that's when I've traveled, it's either been because of invitations or because I've had the occasion. It's been a privilege, actually, to, to be part of some Roman um, organizations that were, where I was appointed to, to do some, some work for the church. And yeah. I was always happy to do that. Yeah. Well, what is the, uh, as, as you begin, sort of maybe as, as people get the vaccine and the pandemic begins to dissipate a little bit, you'll enter into the sort of more ordinary life of a retired bishop. What, what does that, what does public ministry look like f- for you as a retired bishop, do you think? You know, a year ago, I would have told you that I, I'd know by this time, but I don't know because I don't think I've started that yet. Yeah. Uh, the enforced uh, closure that I've had over the last year has uh, not been the same as being retired, I don't think. You know, yeah. I, uh, the thing that I found most burdensome is an ordinary was having a calendar that's filled a year or more in advance where there's no flexibility for family and friends. And uh, so I am still hesitant to take long-term commitments. 
by long term, I don't mean long in the sense, but in, in a distance. So when people ask me to give a talk in a place a year from now, I don't want to say yes because I, I don't know what I want to be doing a year from now. Yeah. And uh, I was hoping that I would begin to make those kind of decisions after a year of retirement when I when I saw how I could uh, maintain some kind of flexibility uh, and spontaneity in my life and still serve the needs of the church. You know, people are, when they're planning a program, they want to know a year in advance. I understand that, but I haven't been willing to say yes yet. Because, but also I think that they have to get used to inviting other people and not the same old voices all the time. And mm-hmm. the younger, younger bishops ought to be the ones that they start inviting to do those kind of things. And, those of us who are older, we still have a voice, but uh, we no longer have a vote. Right. And uh, and it seems to me that if you don't have the vote, the vote, you shouldn't talk too much. Well, you've occupied, I'm glad you sort of recognize it about yourself because it makes it less awkward for me to raise it, but you've occupied a unique place in the American church and in the American Episcopate as a really well, um, well-known um, and well-regarded leader, especially among a lot of bishops. I'm thinking some of your last few speeches at the bishops' conference meetings were met with these big rounds of applause that were as much about you, I think, broadly as a particular point that you were making. Are you able now to kind of um, encourage younger bishops to step into positions of leadership or help them in, in those ways? I tried to do that all along, but I'm, I'm going out of my way now to, when people ask me to do things, I, I say, well, have you asked somebody else? Have mm-hmm. you asked a Maybe sometimes I'll mention a bishop's name. Even yeah. um, I've I've actually um, resigned from all my board memberships except EWTN, and that's going to happen sometime before the end of this year uh, because I've wanted these groups to bring in new voices and younger bishops. And I still have the energy to go to those meetings, you know. And people think I'll want to go because you. You get to, you know, they, they fly you there and they put you up in a hotel and all those kind of things. And none of that stuff interests me sure. anymore, yeah. you know. So I'm, I'm always uh, happy to see somebody else do it. Yeah. But I, it's not because I don't want to be responsible because I do. And I, I, will, I, I, I can't be quiet when I see that there are things to be concerned about. I've noticed that. <laughs> but if I, uh, I think other people need to be, otherwise it's, you end up being a, the voice of one man one old man and you can be dismissed pretty easily as well. He just an old retired Bishop was cranky. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to be, I am old, I am retired, but I don't want to be cranky. And, uh, <laughs> but I also want to make sure I, I preach uh, the truth of the church. It's funny. Sometimes and, during, no, go ahead, please. No, you go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, you know, sometimes at Bishop's meetings, a retired guy comes to the microphone and you see he's actually got a list and you can tell he's been working on it since the last meeting of just, you know, here are some things I've noticed and it's sweet, but it does not seem like your style. Well, it is. I'm not going to go to any of the vicious meetings. Yeah. We are always invited to go. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing to me how many bishops would go and they would, how many would talk, you know, and uh, it, <laughs> You know, some years ago when I was a young bishop, we voted not to let the retired bishops vote, <laughs> but they had the, the right to speak. And then as time went on, many people in my generation joked that we should have given them the right to vote and told them they couldn't speak because they spoke so often. And I don't, I don't want to be one of those. But I'm not going to go to bishops' meetings, uh, first of all, because I don't know how useful they actually are. But secondly, they, it costs a, a, a thousand or maybe $2,000 a whack. And uh, I don't think a diocese can afford that for someone who isn't making the decisions. And I, yeah. I'm not part of the decision-making group anymore. So I'm not going to go. And you made the point even at the conference that you think, um, it seems that one of the things I've taken away from what you've said at the conference often is that there's a way in which bishops can sort of lean on the conference instead of taking responsibility for things in their individual dioceses or taking initiatives in their individual dioceses. Well, that, that's true, but also uh, it's a huge bureaucracy yeah. and it's very difficult for bishops to say anything very clearly, very quickly. Yeah. in response to what's going on in the church, because it has to go through this committee and we meet twice a year as a body. It has to be voted on by the body. By that time, the issue is gone. So, uh, you know, I, I think the USCCB is a good place for us to exchange information and learn from one another, but I don't think it's a very good way of teaching Yeah, because it's such a burdensome structure. Yeah. Well, I want to come back to the book because that's what you're plugging here. The chapter that I was most struck by is the reflection on friendship which is a, a very beautiful um, chapter. I wonder, it's it's framed as an afterword. I wonder if you can sort of speak about why it's framed that way, sort of set apart from the book. It's kind of a, probably a romantic way of making it 
giving it attention, you know, yeah. in a way it's because it's really almost as long as a chapter would be. And it's kind of like going off into the sunset, talking about friendship. And that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing to do. Well, it um, is. And you do it well. Well, thank you very much. I, you know, friendship is the heart of our relationship with Jesus. He, he says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And there's no greater love than to lay down the life for a friend. And he showed us uh, how to do that. You know, he's the example of that. And uh, those of us who are Christians are, are supposed to be disciples of the Christ, of Jesus. And since he is willing to die for us, we should be willing to die for him and learn from him how to die for other people. And, you know, friendship has been a really important part of uh, my life. Uh, when I'm discouraged, I look to friends for not only for support, but for example. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I'm the kind of person that needs their example more than I need their personal support. I need the example of other people, you know, struggling with the same issue that I'm struggling with. And I think that it, the friendship is the future of Christianity yeah. because that's, that's the way you have genuine conversions by meeting people who are believers and then becoming part of their life and being infected with the virus of uh, grace yeah. that changes our lives and makes us different kind of people who are friends of God. Archbishop, I hear from priests um, from time to time, something that makes me honestly very sad you know, I do this uh, weekly podcast and from time to time, I'll hear from a priest who says, I really like the podcast because I live by myself and it, it ends up being kind of the, the closest thing I get to like drinks with friends each week, which really makes me, I mean, I wish that it shouldn't be that way. Right. I mean, listening to, uh, well, I mean, they're it, drinking while they are listening to your podcast. That must mean something. Well, I mean, they, anyone to get through it needs to usually do that. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I meant. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Driven to it, perhaps. <laughs> But you know what they're what they're really saying is they don't have they don't have very many friends or they don't spend any time with their friends and I, I hear from young priests who say some iteration of that very often. I wonder if you have advice for especially for for clerics or for celibates just about building building meaningful lifelong lasting friendship. Well, you know, it's, I kind of grew up in a period of time when uh, people thought that if you were a priest, the only friends you could have would be other priests. Yeah, and that does limit the number of people. They could possibly be your friends if that w- would be true. And it, it seems to me that it's not true. I mean, it's true that uh, you, if you don't, if you aren't a priest, you probably don't understand the life of the priest as well as yeah. if you were a priest, you know, that's yeah. true. But the fact that uh, I'm not married to your wife doesn't mean I can't understand you, even though you are married to her, right. you know? And, and so uh, it seems to me that we ought to have uh, many friends are, 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 Families are our friends, you know, our brothers and sisters are our parents. I think most priests have a good relationship with their family and they maintain their relationship with their brothers and sisters. Yeah. But oftentimes they don't um, have um, friends among the laity as I think they should. Of course, there's a danger of that. You know, it, it, people become jealous if you're friendlier with some members of the parish than you are with others. And so sometimes maybe your best friends should be those from your previous parish or, mm-hmm. you know, outside the parish structure so that, uh, you don't show favoritism, but there's no way that we're going to survive as human beings without good friendships. And they come where they come from, right? Some, and they, you know, actually one of my very good friends is an Orthodox Jew. So it, you don't even have to share some of the fundamentals of life to be good friends. I, I think I'd have a hard time being a friend with somebody who was pro-abortion and um, mm-hmm. favored um, euthanasia, you know, the things that I find horrible. Yeah, because you know that we wouldn't share values, but uh, I think you can be friends of people who think very differently than you. And I think the most interesting people are those who aren't the same as us. You know, yeah. So I, I think interracial friendships are really important. Uh, friendships with people with different kinds of uh, academic backgrounds and uh, knowledge is really helpful to become a, more of an educated person. Yeah. So I, I favor friendships across the board. I've always been struck with you that you have a set of friendships who are sort of in the ecclesiastical milieu, whether they're priests or not. But then you also seem to have these friends who are like not from sort of the church universe at all. And that, it seems like maybe that's a, a healthy approach. Yeah. So one of my best friends uh, died uh, a year and a half ago and he was a Catholic and a good, I mean, a faithful Catholic, but didn't think at all about the church in the same way I did, but we were the best of friends Yeah. Um, just because we were. Yeah. Um, and it was a friendship born of, uh, I, I met him in church ministry, but uh, 
our friendship began by being fishing buddies and then developed into just a lifelong relationship of very good friends. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, uh, just, I want to conclude with just a couple of questions. There's this exercise you talk about in the book, but I don't know, probably every journalist has asked you this because it's just right there for the taking, but there's this exercise you talk about in the book about thinking about what people will say at your own funeral as a kind of way to think about what you value or what's important to you. And so obviously the fact that you put in the book means you left yourself open for people to ask you about what you think people might, or what you hope people will say about you as they recall you at your funeral or uh, maybe at drinks after your funeral. Well, you know, I actually already know what they're going to say about me because I, they've said it already. <laughs> I mean, you yourself wrote a wonderful tribute to me when I retired. I'm grateful for that. It was very beautiful. So thank you. But it, it was like what people would say after I died. So I think I know what people are going to say. And, and they'll get, they're going to say the good things I hope are true. And I hope they don't know the bad things. They don't have to say those as well. Yeah. Um, but I already know that. And I'm grateful for it because uh, I've received more than my share of affirmation uh, from people. Uh, and I'm deeply grateful for that because it does make life easier. And gives me confidence about what I've done and what I hope to continue to do. But uh, I, I don't think that I'm sitting around wondering what people are going to say because they've already said it. Yeah, that's a great grace. Well, there's a game we play here on um, here at the Pillar Podcast, and um, we often make guests play it without asking them about it first, which is what I'm doing here. Well, we play a couple games. One of them is a game that we call Yes or No. I, do you you don't listen to our podcast, right? I don't. Oh, okay. I don't listen to anybody's podcast. So I'm actually I'm glad about that because I would feel like a lot of pressure. <laughs> so, um, so good. Don't. Um, but uh, but there's a game we play, which we have found is kind of like it gives you a good snapshot of a person in, in a very um, easy way and a very quick way. And it's a game we play yes, no. And it's based on the premise that you should let your yes be yes and your no be no and let that stand. And so um, the way the game works is that I, I'll just give you a list of things. Uh, and uh, And what we're interested in is just your sort of initial, visceral, immediate, right out of the gate reaction to these things. So, so it's just yes or no. Those are your choices with no elaboration. It'll, it'll be tough for you because like me, you're going to want to qualify things or offer some caveat. Um, or oh, not like you. You're a can of lawyers. So you're very <laughs> precise. So I, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be quite as bad. Never quite that. <laughs> but anyway, so um, we're going to play um, Archbishop Chaput, yes or no. And here we go. Okay. Archbishop Chaput, yes or no. Comic book movies. Like them, yes. Reality TV? No. Priests with facial hair? No. Man buns? No. Good. Bourbon? Yes. Good. Good choice. Good choice. IPAs? No. Oh, thanks be to God. I'm very, very grateful that you have wisdom about that. Um, Saturday vigil masses beginning at noon? No, no, no. Good. UFOs? Yes. Canon 915. Which one is that again? I'm not really good at lawyer, but <laughs> those who obstinately persevere and manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. Yes, it's true. All right. There you are. J.R.R. Tolkien. Wonderful. Yes. Michael Jordan as the greatest of all time. Probably. Sandals with socks. Oh, no. <laughs> good. This is a Philadelphia question. Bryce Harper. I don't even know who Bryce Harper is. I so. said that. I told Ed. Ed put this on. He said, this is a big, it, he's some Philadelphia Philly. And Ed said, this is a big Philadelphia Phillies question. I said, I didn't think you were going to. Well, gonna, you know, they, know they say that unless you're born here, you're not really a Philadelphian. So, so there you I go. guess this proves it. Yeah. I guess so. Kansas. Yes. Las Vegas. Yes. Rome. Yes. Cuban cigars. Yes. Veganism. No. Concilium. No. The pillar. Yes. Well done. Thank you, Archbishop. That was a great round of yes, no. Fantastic. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being with us. And uh, the book uh, is Things Worth Dying For, and you can get it wherever fine books can be obtained. Well, thank you for the attention of the book. You know, I think it's, uh, I, I, I finished it in July and sent it to the publisher and then didn't look at it again until about a month ago, two weeks before it was published. I said, I better start reading this. <laughs> so I remember what I said, you know, and I like it. I like yeah. the book very much. You know, I like it uh, better than any of the other books I wrote actually. So I hope people find it helpful. Uh, well, I like it too. And I, I hope people will read it and we'll put 
Um, we'll put links to it in the show notes so that those of you who are listening can uh, can click right there to get a copy. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. God bless you. Bye.